Well, this morning our text comes from Ecclesiastes. It's one of four books of wisdom in the Old Testament. Job concerns wisdom and suffering. Proverbs, the wisdom of how life ordinarily works in God's morally ordered world. The Song of Solomon, wisdom concerning erotic love, which the teacher says belongs in marriage. And Ecclesiastes, which offers us the wisdom of seeing that life makes no sense apart from God. So I want to invite you to uh, stand and turn to the, to the book of Ecclesiastes. So you need to find the Psalms, which are usually kind of in the middle of your Bible. Turn past Proverbs, and there you'll find Ecclesiastes. And we're going to read uh, from chapter 3. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, uh, free us from every distraction and allow your spirit especially to rest upon us that we would uh, might hear what you'd say uh, to us. Uh, thank you that all of us have some relationship with God. May you be pleased to grant that it would all be good ones. And some of us would leave here, if we have a bad one, with a changed relationship. For we pray in Christ's name. Amen. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Please take your seats. Now, much of wisdom is about timing, the timing of an important or perhaps difficult conversation in a marriage or family, the timing of the purchase of an airline ticket, I'm told, requires uh, wisdom as certainly any major purchase like a car or a house. It takes wisdom to know when you should put something off. You can just procrastinate, and wisdom when you can't. The Bible affirms this observation in uh, many times. In Proverbs 15, it's written, To make an apt answer is a joy to a man, and a word in season, how good it is. It's not just what is said or how it is said, but when it is said. Psalm uh, 90 uh, says, Teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. 
In fact, the entire book of Ecclesiastes is concerned with recognizing time while you're still young to come to terms with the fact that your life can only uh, be understood in, in relation to the Creator. It says it that, uh, much more poetically this way. Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. He means before old age comes. And then he goes on in a very poetic way uh, to describe uh, the ravages of time on our bodies. Our text this morning is one of the most beautiful and well-known passages in all the Bible. It became famous because Pete Seeger wrote, Turn, 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 and the birds turned it into a hit. And the teacher begins this way, For everything there is a season and an appropriate time for every matter. And then the teacher sets out 14 uh, pairs of polar opposites. And this is a literary device, a figure of speech called a mirrorism. And what it does is it denotes completeness. This is how it works. There is a time to plant and a time to harvest. That's what a time to pluck what is planted means. He mentions the beginning and the end of an activity in each of these pairs. And it includes all the activities in between, from preparing the soil and fertilizing, to sowing, to weeding, to harvesting. That's what a merism does. It captures the complete process uh, in growing food. And there is an appropriate time for each of these activities, just as there is a fitting time to plant Kentucky bluegrass. I have a degree in agronomy. I'm going to tell you, summer or spring is not the time. It's fall. That's when you plant Kentucky bluegrass. Otherwise, you're mostly probably throwing your money away. There's a time to plant begonias and tomatoes. You can plant cabbage before first frost, but not tomatoes. A time to be born and a time to die. That includes everything from the day of your birth to learning to walk to talk, to going to school, uh, to acne and shaving, uh, to getting a job, and to growing old. That whole span of things is what's included. And you could work that out for each of these pairs, but I won't. His point is, is that we cannot change this. It is fixed. God has fixed it. God is sovereign over time. Life occurs in his time. God's control of time imposes itself on us. God's control of time imposes itself on us. And while you may deny that God exists, you can't escape his imposition of time on your life and all its activities. You may be 16, and you want the freedom you imagine you will have as an adult. It's a little more imagined, probably, than actually will turn out to be. But you'll have to wait until you grow up, till you finish growing up, to have uh, that. Or you may not want to grow old. You don't mind living a long time, but the prospect of growing old is something, well, you find distasteful. You would like somehow to avoid. In fact, many of you spend a considerable amount of energy doing what you can uh, to lengthen your span of health. And that's a good thing. But I want to tell you, should you live long enough, 
the ravages of old age in one form or another will come to you. There's nothing you can do to stop it. God has appointed it. To fail to be aware of the time, to discern the appropriate action for a given moment of time, is foolishness and often disastrous. It is wisdom to see, embrace, and to live, knowing that life unfolds in God's time. I could go on, but I'm going to press on to the next thing I want you to see. In verse 11, the teacher both comforts and sobers us. He writes, He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart. Yet, so that he cannot find out what God has done from beginning to the end. God rules over our time and activities. And that reassures us that there's purposefulness in life because of God's oversight in its seasons. The psalmist expresses this when he says, my times are in your hands. And there is a beauty that the eyes of faith can see and discern in God's timing and ordering of activities. That word beauty is reflecting on the goodness of creation. But there's a sobering note here as well. Humans can't find out what God has done from beginning to the end. We simply don't know all of God's purposes and can't work out all of his reasons for things. We experience this, I suppose, most poignantly when we or someone we love suffers. We don't know what the purpose of that suffering is, this particular painful experience in their lives. Life in a fallen world has many tragic experiences. Now, intriguingly, God has laid a quest for meaning on all of us. The writer puts it this way. He has put eternity into man's heart. It refers to the capacity of something larger and greater uh, than the succession of times that are so uncontrollable. Christianity is distinctive and unique from all other religions because it says that God himself has entered into time, in the fullness of time, in just the right time. He entered into time as a man, not giving up his divinity. And he experienced all the seasons that we experience. He did this in order to restore our relationship with God, for we're meant to live in a close relationship with him, to know him and enjoy him. In fact, we were made to live uh, forever, but death entered the world because we rebelled against him. God's redemptive action in time in real human history answers the quest for meaning and purpose that's greater than ourselves. And the story of God entering into time is told in the four Gospels. That's why they're called good news, because God has entered into our world to do something about all its brokenness. And I hope you've read them, but if you haven't read one of them and you're you're curious about Christianity or even skeptical, oh, I would so encourage you to take time to read one. And you might want to invite someone along as a conversation partner. Some things will will be a little puzzling uh, to you if you haven't lived in the first century. Um, And uh, if you want such a partner, please let me know. I know I can 
help you find one if you don't know who someone might be. It is now. Now is the time to respond to the good news. And if you understand the message of the good news, then today is the day of salvation. It's time to be reconciled with God, to include God in your life. Being reconciled to God means enjoying a good, a positive relationship with him. And that's really the foundation to understanding who you are and what you were made for, the very purpose of your life. Now, my purpose in coming to Ecclesiastes this morning is to anchor the transition team report in Scripture itself. The report and its recommendations are the product of discerning what time it is for the church, for your church. And if I may say, because I love you and feel like I'm part of you, our church. The report sets out what activities are right and appropriate for this season. And very simply put, the report says it's time to grow young again. It's time to take the steps and turn back the clock. Actually, churches can do what people cannot do. (laughs) Churches can turn back the clock and grow young again. It's time for change. Now, I want to offer a little context here, especially for those of you who are guests or new. In 2019, uh, the elders felt that the church was in some ways stalled and not making progress, and it was time to do uh, an evaluation. And so all the elders and pastors uh, were interviewed, and other research was uh, done, and it was pulled together, and uh, a life cycle of the church was drawn up, a diagram to show where the church was. So if you're not familiar with this idea, all living things have life cycles. That includes churches and organizations. Um, I know you might not think of an organization quite as living, but like living things, churches have life cycles. And you can think of it as a parabola or a bell curve. And on uh, my left, your right, is the side where birth begins and the church as it develops, um, it begins uh, to grow, um, it faces outward, um, it's life-giving, it's reproducing, it's oriented around its mission, it adapts, it learns, it tries things, it adapts again, it takes risks, it's willing to fail. In order, uh, in order to have an effective ministry. And people come to Christ, their lives are changed, and it's wonderful to be in that, uh, that stage. But then the, a church reaches a place, and often it doesn't recognize when this happens, where it plateaus, and then it starts a decline. And so it goes through, if you want to make a comparison to our lives, it goes to where it's had children, and then the children leave, and uh, its nest is empty, and then it retires, and then it moves into old age, and finally it dies. In 2019, the elders, when they looked at this, they decided the church was in the middle of the right-hand side. It was in the middle of the place of uh, decline. Uh, And 
and that meant that it had an institutional character. It was predominantly marked by these characteristics. It was held together by rules and procedures. Um, innovation happened only from the top uh, down. Uh, it was slow uh, to make decisions or implement changes. It valued security and predictability over risk-taking and adaptation. It became, like all organizations do when they get down to this side, facing inward, past-oriented, risk-avoiding, and stagnant, which is what the elders had concluded. And a life cycle means if you don't do something to start a new life cycle, you'll just continue, whether quickly or slowly, uh, to die. Well, in 2001, the youth, the congregation, and regular attenders were invited to participate in a survey called the Ministry Insight Tool. And it, too, looked at the life cycle. And as a congregation, you placed the church in exactly the same place the elders had in its 2019 uh, retreat. But churches, and this is a wonderful thing, can start a new life cycle. They can grow young. They can add years. And they can keep doing this decade after decade. And no church that lives to be 100 or 200 has not gone through many, many uh, uh, restarts of new life cycles. And um, even though it may not have recognized that's what it was doing, that is in fact what uh, happened. Now, CRPC is at an inflection point, a tipping point, a critical moment. And like tens of thousands of others, uh, you face a choice. So Tom Rainer is a well-known, not made known to you, church consultant who has data on tens of thousands of churches and has worked, he and his team, with more than 10,000 churches. And so he has more than, uh, well, than just a an educated guess about the state of the church in America. And he says, about one-third of the churches in America are healthy. They are on the incline. They are life-giving, reproducing, impacting their people and their surrounding communities. And about the other two-thirds are not. They're not on that side. One-third of those in the next 10 years will start a new life cycle, and they will flourish once again, and they'll have many, many more years of productive ministry. And one-third of them will choose not to start a life cycle. They will continue to decline. Many of them uh, will die because numerically they will shrink, uh, either by aging or death, or their members relocate for one reason or another, and they no longer have guests who will stay and commit to the church. And sadly, and uh, Tom Rainier saw this happen repeatedly, churches choose to die because they don't want to be uncomfortable. See, making change is uncomfortable. And in many churches, people are more committed to staying comfortable than asking or facing the question is of what does the Lord of the church himself want? Well, how do you start a new life cycle? Well, you enter into a period of assessment and you discern what needs to be reformed in accordance with the master blueprints for the church that are found in the New Testament. And then you work toward renewal and then you ask God to do what only he can do 
which is to revitalize his church, to blow the fresh winds of the Spirit, and to give new life. It's the three R's. Reform, revitalize, that's the human part. Excuse me, reform and renew, that's the human part, and revitalize, the giving of new life. Now, CRPC today is poised to start a new life cycle, and the report recommends and calls for significant change. These changes, most of them align actually with CRPC's foundational commitments and how it was at, in its early days. There's nothing in the report that doesn't align with our commitment to Scripture, to Reformed theology, or biblical Presbyterian church government. And really, many of them draw on the very best of the early days in the life of the church and its current strengths. And others build on the rich uh, treasure of our Reformed traditions and what other Reformed congregations have learned and are learning about doing ministry in the 21st century. None of these changes in any way minimizes the importance and the centrality of the ministry of worship. Not a single one. And none of them touch any doctrine. There's no change in the doctrine of God, the plan of salvation, the way Christ's work is applied to us. Nothing like that. It does contain a compelling vision. And if you will open your heart and mind to it, it has the power to inflame your imagination and energize you to actually carry out the actionable plan for renewal that the transition team has written. Should you do that, you will have prepared the way for a new season of flourishing as well as create a stronger foundation when you call a new pastor. Jesus, when he was in Jerusalem at the Feast of Passover, just a few days from his death, um, well, there were some Greeks there who, who came, who wanted to see Jesus, some, some Greek Jewish people, Jewish in their religion, and they came to Philip, because they didn't want to approach Jesus directly. They thought, well, we'll go through Philip, and Philip went to Andrew, and together they came to Jesus. And Jesus said this to them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. You see, these Greeks come and ask uh, for an audience with Jesus. Maybe they want his autograph. I don't know what they were after. They wanted to meet this famous rabbi. And um, uh, Jesus seems, when he's approached, to ignore <laughs> the request. And he goes on to talk about something else. And what's happened here is that these Greeks showing up remind Jesus of what he's about to do, the very central purpose which he has come in his mission. It's why he's going to the cross to save the world. And here they are, a little sample of the world, knocking on the door, asking for an audience with him. 
When Jesus says the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, that word hour in John's gospel always refers to the hour of Christ's death on the cross. You see, Jesus knows exactly what time it is. And the cross in John's gospel is where God is glorified. And then Jesus says, truly, truly. When Jesus says that, he's saying, wake up, open your ears, pay attention. This is huge. And he says, well, what he says is just a commonplace saying about farming. He says, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. In other words, if you don't plant your seeds into the ground and they start what looks like rotting and wasting away, dying, then you're not going to get a harvest. It stays alone. It's just a single grain. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And Jesus is speaking here about his mission, that through death, many will have life. And then Jesus applies this to his followers. He says, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. He's saying if we seek our own life, the good life, comfort and security, we will lose it. If we hate, by that he means we prioritize God's kingdom over our own, we will know the fullest of life. This is the paradox of discipleship. Jesus says this at least four times in uh, the Gospels, and it just runs completely against the grain of how we want to live. The paradox concludes with Jesus speaking of God's honor and glory. Honor and glory are very closely connected. The Father is glorified when we love him and his kingdom more than our lives. But he's not just talking about martyrdom here. He means all the things we prefer, all the things that make us comfortable, more than having the life that he wants for us. Jesus applies this principle of from death comes life, just as it belongs to his mission, to every one of his followers. But it also, I'm convinced, applies to the church. Now, you are the seventh church I have served And five of those churches I've served have had new life cycles. Actually, I watched several of them happen. I served at 10th, which is today 192 years old in Philadelphia. And though I don't know its history well, I can tell you just a little bit on the website tells you they went through multiple life cycle uh, restarts. They started new life cycles. They didn't give up who they uh, really were in their essence, but they adapted and changed as the city changed. Wallace is the church I know best. It was my college church, and for those of you who are new here, it's really not very far uh, from here. It's where I was ordained, and I was honored and privileged uh, to serve on the staff during a transition. It is 112 years old. It was started in 1910 as Knox United Presbyterian Church. And when it was started... It was an exclusive psalmody church. It only sang psalms. I don't know whether it had instruments or not because my wife wasn't there in 1910 to tell me about it. (laughs) But it was the flagship church for the denomination. It was planted in the District of Columbia to reach the metropolitan area. 
Some point before World War II, it gave up exclusive psalmody and adopted uh, hymns as a part of its musical uh, traditions. And whether uh, instruments were there or not, I can tell you there were instruments there in, in the old Wallace uh, church. And then in, as World War II began to happen, the population of Washington it, uh, swelled, and so did Wallace. Wallace grew to about 1,200 people. And then when uh, the war ended, people began to move out to the suburbs. In 1947, the elders discerned that it was time to start a new church. And that's the Church of the Atonement. It's over in Silver Springs, still ministering uh, today. And as the elders continued along, they discerned it was time uh, to move the church, to relocate. And so they relocated to Hyattsville, uh, Maryland. They started that process in 1959. And I don't know all the details about it, but I can tell you that they uh, chose to start it in a neighborhood because that was the best practice of church planning in 1959. Start a church in a neighborhood and people will walk to it. And in fact, for many years, there were people in the neighborhood who did walk to the church. Fast forward to some years later when Glenn was pastor he wisely called a young couple named the Hudgens to the church. And then he turned them loose because he, and I suppose the session, discerned that their greatest opportunity for ministry resided at the campus of the University of Maryland, which was about one mile away. And Lance spent a lot of his time ministering to the leaders of the ministries of three of the large campus ministries at that time. And the fruitfulness of that was extraordinary. The college and career class when I uh, joined the college class when I came to it probably had between 80 and 120 students in attendance. And many of those students stayed and got married, like I did there. And, and many of them today serve in churches as officers. Well, a few years later, I end up going to seminary. And while I'm in seminary, the church, the elders discern, and the congregation joined in with this that it was time to leave the large mainline church because of its doctrine, what had happened. And join in another church, which in time joined into the PCA. That was another life cycle uh, starting, just as it was with the college ministry, just as it was to move out to Hyattsville, just as it was uh, to change uh, the very nature of uh, their worship service. Wallace grew through its history. While I was there between 1983 and 1986, Wallace planted one church, the Bowie Congregation, now, whether it initiated with the elders, I'm not so sure. I actually think that the people who lived out there decided it was time to start a new church, and the elders wisely <laughs> discerned that they were right. It was time uh, to do that, and they blessed them as they went out. Two more churches were planted fairly close together, and I was there when the meeting took place uh, between the chairman of Mission to North America and the Presbytery, Phil Douglas, and Palmer. And... Uh, 
And he asked me, Palmer asked me later, is Phil right that you should be planting churches? And I said, he absolutely is. And so then Good Hope was planted, and then you were planted. That's where you came from. And it happened in part, in significant part, because, well, all those things I just told you. And that started a new life cycle. They reproduced. They gave birth. But something else happened they hadn't anticipated. The church, uh, well, they gave away maybe half, three-quarters of all the young families. And it was a big difference when I came back uh, after, after serving there. Uh, the building, which had been full of children, oh, there weren't nearly as many children. And at the same time, and it had been happening while I was there, the, the community around the church had changed dramatically, and they weren't reaching that community. And so they, they realized over the course of time that they needed to do something different. And so when they called uh, Dr. Clark to be their pastor, they made sure that he was someone who could help them reach the different ethnicities around them. And then they made a very difficult decision because they realized that their very large facility was actually a liability and that they needed to move. And so they sold their property to another church, and they did what was probably really hard for a lot of people. They went to Northwestern High School and worshiped in a gym. That was hard. You know, if you love that big pipe organ, I can tell you that big pipe organ was not there in that gym. <laughs> and, uh, and those of you, a lot of you have done this. This is relatively recent to have chairs you don't have to set up every Sunday morning. You know, it gets really old fast, setting up church uh, chairs. Um, and today, they have a wonderful facility. And they're one of the most ethnically diverse congregations uh, in our denomination. Um, that took planning. Those, that's how they restarted the life of the church. And they're right now starting another life cycle because they want to reach their community. And they realize they're not doing that the way they want to. That's how you get to be 112 years old. You adapt, you face reality, you get creative, you launch a new life cycle. They did that again and again and again. And let me add that some of that happened in the pastoral search committee because that group of lay people, I'm sure there were some elders thrown in, but that group discerned what the church needed in its next season. They played a critical role in doing that. And that's what your transition team has done uh, for you. The Lord of the church lived and died so, and rose raised from the dead so that we might have new life. And he desires to do that in his church again and again. And if you will act and recognize what needs to be reformed and work at renewing, I am confident he will be pleased to breathe the wind of the Spirit and revitalize you. Let's pray. Gracious Lord Jesus, we do thank you that you are the Lord of life, that you uh, have risen uh, in power uh, to everlasting uh, life in your humanity. And we too will rise with you. We thank you that your church will never disappear. And we pray, Father, for this church, our church, that you'd be pleased to so work among us, that this church 
uh, would celebrate if you tarry 100 years, 150 years, 200 plus years. 